Arthur Pink, Spiritual Growth, number three. And we're in uh, the chapter on its necessity. We didn't complete it last week, and I'm going to continue. This is number one. Only thus is the triune God glorified. This is so obvious that it really needs no arguing. It brings no glory to God that his children should be dwarfs. As sunshine and rain are sent for the nourishment and fruitification of vegetation, so the means of grace are provided that we may increase in our spiritual stature. 1 Peter 2.2 As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. <clears throat> Not only in the intellectual knowledge of it, but of the practical conformity thereunto. This should be our chief concern and be made our principal business to become better acquainted with God and to the have heart more occupied with and affected by his perfections, to seek after a fuller knowledge of his will, to regulate our conduct thereby, and thus show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. First <coughs> Peter 2.9 The more we evidence our sonship, the more we conduct ourselves as become of the children of God before a perverse generation. The more we do honor him who has set his love upon us, that our spiritual growth and progress and his glorifying unto God appears plainly from the prayers of the apostles. For none were more concerned about his glory than they, and nothing occupied so preeminent a place in their intercession as this. As we hope to allude to this again later, one or two quotations here must suffice. For the Ephesians, Paul prayed that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God, 3.19. For the Philippians, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, 1.9-11. For the Colossians, 1.10-11. That ye might walk worthy of the Lord into all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. From which we learn that it is our privilege and duty to obtain more spiritual views of the divine perfections, begetting in us an increasingly an increasing holy delight in him, making our walk more acceptable. There should be a growing acquaintance with the excellence, excellency of Christ, advancing in our love of him, and the more lively exercises of our graces. Number two, only then do we give proof of our regeneration. John 15, 8, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit, so that ye be my you shall be my disciples. This does not mean we become the disciples of Christ as a result of our fruitfulness, that we make but that we make manifest we are his by our fruit-bearing. They who bear no fruit have no vital union with Christ, and like the barren fruit fig tree, are under his curse. Very solemn is this, and by such a criterion each of us should measure it himself. That which is brought forth by the Christian is not to be restricted unto what in many circles is called service or personal work but as reference to that which issues from the exercise of all the spiritual graces. Thus, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good unto them that hate you, and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be children of your Father which is in heaven. Matthew five forty four and 45. That is, that you may make it evident to yourself and fellows that you have been made partaker of the divine nature. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, etc. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Galatians 5, 19, 22, and 23. The reference is not directly to what the Holy Spirit produces, but rather to that which is born of the Spirit, or new nature, of which he is the author. John 3, 6. 
This is evident from its being set over against the works of the flesh or the old nature. It is by means of this fruit, these lovely graces, that the regenerate make manifest the presence of the supernatural principle within them. The more such fruit abounds, the clearer our evidence that we have been born again. The total absence of such fruit would prove our profession to be an empty one. It has often been pointed out by others that what issues from the flesh is designated works, for a machine can produce such, but that which of the spirit yields as living fruit, in contrast with dead works, Hebrews 6, 1, 9, 14. This fruit bearing is necessary in order to evidence the new birth. Number three, only thus do we certify that we have been made partakers of an effectual call and are among the chosen of God. Brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, 2 Peter 1.10, is a divine exhortation, one which has puzzled many. Yet it should not. It is not to secure it Godward, which is impossible, but to make it more certain to yourselves and your brethren. And how is this to be accomplished? Why? By our acquiring a clearer and full evidence of the same, by spiritual growth. For growth is proof that life is present. This interpretation is definitely established by the context. After enumerating the bestowments of the divine grace, verses 3 and 4, the apostle says, <clears throat> Now here is your responsibility. And besides this, giving all diligence, add to your faith by bringing it to exercise virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience, and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Verses 5 and 7. 5 to 7. Faith itself is ever to be operative, but according to the different occasions and in seasons, let each of your graces be exercised, and in proportion as they are, the life of holiness is furthered in the soul, and there is proportionate spiritual growth. See Colossians three twelve and 13. Number 4. Only thus do we adorn the doctrine we profess, Titus 2.10. The truth we claim to, to have received into our hearts is the doctrine which is according to godliness, 1 Timothy 6.3. And therefore, the more our daily lives be conformed thereto, the clearer proof do we give that our character and conduct is regulated by heavenly principles. It is by our fruits we are known, Matthew 7.16. For every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. Thus, it is only by are being fruitful in every good work, Colossians 1.10, that we make it manifest that we are the trees of the Lord, Psalm 104.16. Now ye are light in the Lord, walk as children of light, Ephesians 5.8. It is not the character of our walk which qualifies us to become the children of light, but which demonstrates that we are such. Because we are children of him who is light, 1 John 1.5, we must shun the darkness. If we have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 1.2, then only that which should proceed from us which becometh saints. Ephesians 5.3 The more we progress in godliness, the more we adorn our profession. 5. Only thus do we experience more genuine assurance. Peace becomes more stable and joy abounds in proportion as we grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and become more conformed practically to his holy image. It is because so many become slack in using the means of grace and are so little exercised about growing up into Christ in all things, Ephesians 4.16, that doubts and fears possess their hearts. If they do not give all diligence to add to their faith, 2 Peter 1.5, by cultivating their several graces, they must not be surprised if they are far from being sure of their divine calling, calling and election. It is the diligent soul, not the dilatory, who shall be made fat, Proverbs 13.4. It is the one 
who makes conscience of obedience and keeps Christ's commandments, who is favored with love tokens from him. John 14, 21. There is an inseparable connection between our being led forward by the Spirit of God, which intimates our, our voluntary occurrence, and his bearing witness with our spirit. Romans 8, 14, and 16. Number six. Only thus are we preserved from grievous backsliding. In view of much of what has been said above, this should be quite obvious. The very term backsliding denotes failure to make progress and go forward. Peter's denial of Christ in the high priest's palace was preceded by his following him afar off. Matthew twenty six fifty eight, And that has been recorded for our learning and warning. The same principle is illustrated again in connection with the awful fall of David. Though it was at the time when the kings go forth to battle, he was selfishly and lazily taking his ease, and while so lax succumbed to temptation, 1 Samuel 11, 1 and 2. Unless we follow on to know the Lord and learn to make use of the armor which he has provided, we shall easily be overcome by the enemy. Only as our hearts are kept healthy and our affection set upon things above shall we be impervious to the attractions of this world. We cannot be stationary. If we do not grow, we shall decline. Number seven. Only thus shall we preserve the cause of Christ from reproach. The backsliding of his people makes his enemies to blaspheme. How many have taken occasion to do so from the sad case of David? When the world sees us halting, it is gratified, being bolstered in the idea that godliness is but a pose, a sham. Because of this, among other reasons, Christians are bidden to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom shiny as lights in the world, Philippians 2.15. If we go backward instead of forward, and we must do one or the other, then we will greatly dishonor the name of Christ and fill her foes with unholy glee. Rather, it is the will of God that with well-doing we put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, 1 Peter 2.15. The longer they remain in the, this world, the more apparent should be the contrast between the children of light and those who are subjects of the prince of darkness. <coughs> Very necessary, then, from many considerations is our growth in grace. Chapter number four. It's nature, and we're talking about the nature of spiritual growth. We have now arrived at what is really the most important part of our subject, but which is far from being easiest to handle. If we are to be preserved or delivered from erroneous views at this point, it is very necessary that we should form a right concept of what spiritual growth is not and what it actually is. Mistaken ideas thereupon are widely prevalent, and many of God's own people have been brought into bondage thereby. There are those who have made little or no advancement in the school of Christ and fondly imagine that they have progressed considerably and are very hurt if others do not share their opinion, nor is it any simple task to disillusion them. On the other hand, some who have grown considerably know it not and even conclude that they have gone backward, nor is it any, nor is it any easier matter to assure them that they have been needlessly disparaging themselves. In either case, the mistake is due to measuring themselves in the wrong standard, or in other words, through ignorance of what spiritual growth really consists. If the reader met a half dozen people out of as many sections of Christendom whom he is warranted in regarding as children of God and asked them to define for him their ideas of spiritual growth, he would probably be surprised at the diversity and contrariety of the answers given. As the reception of one part of truth compares 
prepares us to take in another, so the admittance of error paves the way for coming in of more error. Moreover, the particular denomination to which we belong in the distinction, distinctive form of, of its line of things, 2 Corinthians 10.16, has a powerful effect in determining the type of Christians reared under its influence. influences, just as the nature of the soil affects the plants growing in it. Not only are its theological views cast into a certain mold and concept of the practical side of Christianity largely determined thereby, but his devotional life and even his personal demeanor are also considerably affected by the same. Consequently, there is much similarity in the experience of the great majority belonging to that particular party. This is largely the case with all the principal evangelical denominations, as it is also with those who profess to be outside all systems. Just as a trained ear may, can readily detect variations of inflection in the human voice and locate by a person's speech and accent what part of the country he hails from, so one with wide interdenominational associations has little difficulty in determining from even a brief talk on spiritual things, which sect his companion belongs to. No label is necessary. <clears throat> his affiliation is plainly stamped upon him. And if in the course of his conversation he should ask his acquaintance to describe what he is considered to be a mature Christian, his portrayal would naturally and necessarily be shaped by the particular ecclesiastical type he was best acquainted with. If he belonged to one particular group, he would picture a somber and gloomy Christian, but if to a group at the opposite pole, a confident and joyous one. The kind most admired in some circles as a deep theologian in others, one who decries dry doctrine, and is occupied chiefly with his subjective life. Yet another would value neither theology nor experience, considering the soul's contemplation of Christ was the beginning and end of the Christian life. While still others would regard as eminent Christians those who have the most zealous and active in seeking to save other sinners. And attempting to describe the character of Christian progress, or as it is more frequently termed, growth in grace, we shall therefore seek to avoid a mistake often made thereon by many denominational writers, a mistake which has most injurious effect on a large number of their readers. Instead of bringing out what the scriptures teach thereupon, only too often they related their own experiences. Instead of treating the essentials of spiritual growth, they dwelt upon circumstantials. Instead of delineating their general features, which are common to all who are the subject of gracious operations, they depicted those exceptional things which are particular only to certain types, the neurotic or the melancholy. This is much the same as though artists and sculptors took for their models only those with unusual deformities instead of selecting an average specimen of humanity. True, it would be a human being that was imaged, yet it would convey only a misrepresentation of the common species. Alas, that, in the religious as well as the physical realm, a freak attracts more attention, attention than a normal person. And this is true. The vast majority of books on holiness are influenced by the Methodist uh, views of the 1800s, which are terrible and heretical and led to the charismatic movement, which is even worse than the original Methodists. <clears throat> we shall not then relate our own spiritual history. First, because we are not now writing to satisfy the unhealthy curiosity of a certain class of readers who delight in pursuing such things. Second, because we regard the private experience of Christians as being too sacred to expose to the public view. It has long seemed to us that there is such a thing as spiritual unchastity. The <coughs> inner workings of the soul are not a fit subject to be laid bare before others. The heart knoweth his own bitterness, and a stranger doth not intermeddle with his joy. Proverbs 14.10 
Third, because we are not so conceited as to imagine our own particular conversion and the ups and downs of our Christian life are of sufficient importance to narrate. Fourth, because there are probably some features about our conversion and some things in our subsequent spiritual history which have been duplicated in very few other cases, and therefore they would only be calculated to mislead others if they should look upon it a parallel for themselves. Finally, because as intimate, intimated above, we would deem it more honoring to God and far more helpful to souls to confine ourselves to the teaching of the Word of God on this subject. But before proceeding, we must anticipate an objection, which is almost certain to be brought against what we have said in the last paragraph. Does not the Apostle Paul describe his conversion? And may not, should not, we do also? Answer. First, Paul is the only New Testament writer who gave us an account of his conversion or related anything of his subsequent experiences. It would be a reversal of all sound reasoning to make an exception into a rule or to conclude that an isolated case established a precedent. <coughs> the very fact that Paul's case stands alone indicates it is not to be made an example of. Second, his experience was not only exceptional but unique. The means used was the supernatural appearance to him of the ascended Christ, so that he had a physical sight of him and heard his voice with his natural ears, a thing which none of us, none has done since. Third, the account of his conversion was not made to intimate Christian friends, nor before a local church when applying for membership, but instead before his enemies, Acts 22, and Agrippa, virtually his judge, when making a defense for his life. Thus the circumstances were extraordinary and afford no criteria for ordinary cases. Finally, his experience on the Damascus Road was necessary to qualify him for the apostolic office, Acts 121, excuse me, Acts 122, 1 Corinthians 15, 8 and 9, and see 2 Corinthians 12, 11. I'll just say, this, this practice of, <coughs> you go up to the church, instead of going up to the church and making a confession of faith, uh, based on your view of Christ and your faith in Christ and all that, a lot of churches, like Baptist churches, for example, it's very common where you're required to give your testimony. And it's just a really bad practice, because some testimonies are so crazy and kooky that you know, people should go by a credible confession of faith, which is a Westminster Standards view and the, the Puritans view, not giving your testimony. My testimony is so crazy and so bizarre uh, that I remember when I was a Baptist, a Reformed Baptist for a, a little while, um, you know, 40 years ago, uh, over 40 years ago, that <laughs> I got in, but they barely believed, they, they thought I was making up stuff because my testimony is so crazy. You know, <clears throat> the drug dealing and all the crazy things that went on. <clears throat> Once more, it seems advisable to take up first the negative side of our subject, ere turning to the positive. So many mistaken notions now hold the field that they need uprooting if the ground is to be prepared, or to drop the figure if the minds of many are to be fitted to take in the truth. Our readers differ so much as to the type of ministry they have sat under, and some of them have formed such fallacious views of what spiritual growth consists of, that if we now describe the physical elements of Christian progress, the principal elements of Christian progress, one another would probably consider, according to what they have been imbibed, that we had omitted the most important features. We shall therefore devote the remainder of this chapter to pointing out many, as many as possible, of those things which, though often regarded as such, are not essential parts of spiritual growth. In fact, no part thereof at all. Though this may prove rather wearisome to some, we would ask them to bear with us and offer up a prayer that it may please God to use the paragraphs which follow to the enlightenment of those who are befogged. Number one, weight of years. It is often considered that spiritual growth is to be measured by the calendar. 
and that the length of time one has been a Christian will determine the amount of progress he has made. Certainly it ought to be so, yet in fact it frequently is no index at all. God often pours contempt on the dis- distinctions made by men out of the mouth of babes and sucklings. He has perfected praise, Matthew twenty-one sixteen. It is generally supposed that those with snowy locks are much more spiritual than young believers. Yet if we examine what is recorded of the closing years of Abraham, Isaac, David, Hezekiah, and Israel's kings, we find reason to revise or qualify such a conclusion. True, some of the choicest saints we have met were patriarchs and mothers in Israel. Yet they have been exceptions rather than the rule. Many Christians make more real progress in piety the first year than in the next ten that follow. <coughs> Two, increasing knowledge. We must distinguish between things that differ, namely, a knowledge of spiritual things and actual spiritual knowledge. The former can be acquired by the unregenerate. The latter is peculiar to the children of God. The one is merely intellectual and theoretical. The other is vital and effectual. One may take up Bible study in the same way as another with the study of philosophy or political economy. He may pursue it diligently and enthusiastically. He may obtain a familiarity with the letter of Scripture and the proficiency in understanding its terms. Far in advance of the hard-working Christian, who has less leisure and less natural ability. Yet what is such knowledge worth if it affects not the heart, fails to transform the character, and make the daily walk pleasing to God? Though I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have not love, I am nothing. 1 Corinthians 13.2 Unless our Bible study is conforming us, both inwardly and outwardly to the image of Christ, it prophesies of nothing. Let me give you an example. <coughs> now, <clears throat> I have a ton of commentaries, and I like to have uh, if I could find them, Puritan commentators, they're excellent, and especially in application. Matthew Henry uh, is excellent. Matthew Poole, John Gill, and others, you know, Thomas Manton and so forth. And I like to have 19th century, good old-fashioned Presbyterians. But I like to have some modernist commentaries because their knowledge of Greek and Hebrew and the word studies and, and the, the social melu and all that kind of stuff, they're experts at. And they know doctored and they know exegesis in Greek and Hebrew, but they're not believers. They're liberals. Yet their knowledge of theology and their knowledge of scripture is often far beyond the average evangelical. But they're not Christians. So he's making a good point here. Now knowledge, we should have knowledge, we should study, it's important, but if you don't apply it, if you don't believe it, you don't apply it. You you could read some wonderful thing by some liberal commentator, and then, for example, Barclay, who's a really famous liberal commentator, will say some wonderful things about the resurrection, and then he concludes it by saying, yeah, but it never really happened. (laughs) So it's it's all a waste of time. Number three, development of gifts. An unregenerate person taking up the study of the Bible may also be one endowed with considerable natural talents, such as the power of concentration, a retentive memory, a persevering spirit. As he persecutes a study, his talents are called into play, his wits are sharpened, and he becomes able to convince, converse fluently upon the things he has read, and he is likely to be sought after as a speaker and a preacher. Yet there may not be a spark of the divine life in his soul. The Corinthians grew fast in gifts, 1 Corinthians 1, 4, and 7. Yet they were but babes and carnal, 1 Corinthians 3, 2, and 3, and needed to be reminded of the more excellent way of love to God and their brethren. Ah, my reader, May you not have the showy gifts of some, nor be able to pray in public as others, but you may have a tender conscience and an honest heart, a forbearing and forgiving spirit. You have that which is far better. When I was in seminary, when I was first in seminary, 
in the late 70s, um, there was one student uh, who, who was Orthodox Presbyterian, and the guy was absolutely a genius. The guy had a photographic memory. He was amazing in the languages. He was amazing in theology. He was an incredible preacher, and he... Um, he was just, he won, you know, they had all these awards, you know, best in apologetics, best in theology. He won all the awards in his class, basically. And the guy graduated from seminary and went completely apostate within two years and was a liberal. And he, he was the most, you know, one of the most gifted persons I've ever met. So having knowledge and having gifts, hey, it's nice. But if it's not accompanied by the spirit and it's not accompanied by real works of grace, it's, futile. It is futile. In fact, that, that class that he was in, a bunch of those guys which hung out together, uh, a lot of those guys went apostate. It's very sad. And they were hanging out with Jay Adams' son, and Jay Adams' son went apostate following these guys. Number four, more time spent in prayer. Here again, to avoid misunderstanding, we must distinguish between things that differ, natural prayer and spiritual. Some are Constitutionally devotional are attracted by religious exercises, as others are by music and painting. Yet there may be total strangers to the breathing of God's Spirit in their souls. They may set aside certain parts of the day for a quiet time with God and have a prayer list, as long as there are, and yet be utterly devoid of the spirit of grace and supplications. The Pharisees were renowned for their long prayers. The Mohammedan, with his praying mat, the Buddhist with his praying wheel, and the Papist with all his beads, all illustrate the same principle. It is quite true that growth in grace is ever accompanied by increasing dependence upon God and a delighting of the soul in Him. Yet that does not mean that we can measure our spirituality by the clock, by the amount of time we spend on our knees. When I was, uh, there was a period in my childhood I was raised Roman Catholic when I was a very devout Roman Catholic. And I prayed, I would pray for hours every day and go through the rosary. I prayed more as a Roman Catholic than I do now. But those prayers were in vain, because I believed in heresy. Number five, <clears throat> activity and service. In not a few circles, this has been and still has made the test of one's spirituality. As soon as a young person makes a Christian profession, he is set to work. It matters not how ill-qualified he is, lacking as yet in many instances even a rudimentary knowledge of the fundamentals of the faith. Nevertheless, he is required or at least expected to engage for within some form of that of what is plausibly termed service for Christ. But the epistles will be searched in vain for a warrant for such things. They contain not so, so much as a single injunction for young believers to engage in personal work. On the contrary, they are enjoined to obey their parents in the Lord, Ephesians 6.1, and the young women are to be keepers at home, Titus 2.5, and of course we could include uh, Timothy 5, 1 Timothy 5. Many have reason to lament. They, not God, made me the keeper of the vineyards. But my own vineyard, spiritual graces, have I not kept. Song of Solomon 1.6. And that's particularly true of Baptist circles. Uh, when I was first a professing Christian and my friends in the Southern Baptist Convention, <clears throat> it was all, you know, how many doors did you knock on? How many people did you witness to? And if you weren't doing that, you were considered a second-class Christian. Number six, happy feelings. Considerable allowance needs to be made for both temperament and health. Some are naturally more vivacious and emotional than others, of a more lively and cheerful spirit, and consequently they engage in singing rather than sighing, laughter than weeping. 
When such people are converted, they are apt to be more demonstrative than others, both in expressing gratitude to the Lord and in telling people what a precious Savior is theirs. Yet it would be a great mistake to suppose that they have received a larger measure of the Spirit than the more sober and uh, equable brethren and sisters. A shallow brook babbles noisily, but, it is, but still waters run deep. And yet there are exceptions here, as, in the Niagara, as the Niagara Falls illustrate. Increasing holiness is not to be gauged by our inward comforts and joy, but rather by the more substantial qualities of faith, obedience, humility, love. When a fire is first kindled, there is more smoke and crackling. But after, though the flame has a narrower compass, it has more heat. Number seven, becoming more miserable. Yet, strange as it may sound to some of our readers, there are not a few professing Christians who regard that as one of the principal elements of that as one of the principal elements of spiritual growth. They have been taught to regard assurance as presumption, and Christian joy as lightness, if not levity. Should they experience a brief session of peace in believing, they are fearful that the devil is deceiving them. They are occupied mostly with indelling swin, sin rather than with Christ. They hug their fears and idolize their doubts. They consider what a slow of despond is the only place of safety and are happiest when most wretched. This is by no means an exaggerated picture, yet sadly true to a certain type, certain type of religious life, where long-facedness and speaking in whispers are regarded as evidence of a deep experience and marks of piety. True. The more light God gives us, the more we perceive our sinfulness. Though humbled thereby, the more thankful we should become for the cleansing blood. And I want to say that if, if there's an air of the Puritans and uh, some of those who are the stricter Presbyterian bodies, this is the air. Where we had a, an elder visit us uh, many years ago when I had a church in another state. We had an elder visit us from the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland. And uh, we sang the Psalms too loud and too joyful. And therefore we were irreverent. Um, and the whole the whole view of Christianity is uh, a funeral dirge, and uh, it's all about being depressed and you know. And the problem is, a lot of these churches, when they have communion, the vast majority of members of the church don't partake of communion because they're looking at their belly button, contemplating how wicked and sinful they are to the point where they're not focused enough on Christ. So Pink is this is very wise what Pink is doing here. And it's a hard it's a hard balance. It's easy it's easy to be you know as you become more sensitive to sin. It's very easy to be down on yourself, uh, but don't neglect your focus on Christ, or you'll be, live a life of despair. And that ruined the Puritans in New England. The younger generation just said, "I can't live up to this. I'm no good," and they left. And of course, Unitarianism came in. And, Hopskinianism and all sorts of heretical views of the atonement and all sorts of bad heresies. And uh, they didn't have the proper balance. you got to focus on Christ. Yeah, we're sinners, but you got to focus on Christ. <clears throat> Number eight, added usefulness. But God is sovereign and orders his providences accordingly. Unto one he opens doors, unto another he closes them. And to his good pleasure we are called upon to su submit. Some dreams he replenishes, but others are suffered to dry up. Thus it is in his dealings with his people, by providing or withdrawing favorable openings for them to be a spiritual help to their fellows. It is therefore a great mistake to measure our growth in grace and our bringing forth a good fruit by the largeness or smallness of our opportunities of doing good. Some having larger opportunities when young than when they become older. Yet if the hearts of the latter are right, God accepts the will for the dead, excuse me, for the deed. 
God accepts the will for the deed. Some have the most grace, are stationed in isolated places, and are largely unknown to their fellow Christians. Yet in the eyes of God, uh, yet in the eye of God, he sees them. Shall we say that the flowers on the mountainside are wasted because no human eye admires them? Or that the song of birds in the forest are lost in the air because they regale not in the ears of men? And that's another really, really good point. Especially in America, uh, where Americans kind of worship success. <laughs> you know, they, That's why they like Donald Trump so much. He's a successful businessman. Uh, instead of looking at his character, which is very deficient. He should not be president. Yeah, was he a good president? Well, yeah, compared to the ones we had, yeah, he was he was great. He was the best since Reagan. But he was certainly not qualified to be president. He was an egomaniac and yet he was unlawful unlawfully divorced at least twice, likely. Um but there are some great Christians and some great Christian preachers who just have no followings at all, and there's some guys who are terrible who have huge followings. And that's that's just the way it is. And we can't look upon outward success as, oh, God's blessing that person. That's not necessarily true. And we can't look at the lack of success as necessarily God's upset with that person and God doesn't like their ministry. The important thing is faithfulness. Serve the Lord faithfully. And then uh, I'll do two, two more quickly and then we'll, we'll, we'll wrap this up for today. Number nine, temporal prosperity. Though it is shared by few of our fellow ministers, yet it is a firm conviction of this writer that, as a general rule, temporal adversity and straitened circumstances in the present life of a Christian is a mark of God's displeasure as evidence that he has choked the channel of blessing. See Psalm 84.11, Jeremiah 5.25, Matthew 6.33. On the other hand, we should certainly be drawing... Uh, on the other hand, we should certainly be drawing an erroneous conclusion if we regard the flourishing affairs of an unregenerate professor as proof that the smile of heaven is resting upon him. Rather, would it be the case of the one who is uh, being fattened for the day of slaughter? James 5, 5. Many such a one receives his good things in this world, but in the world to come he is tormented in the flame. Luke 16, 24 and 25. Even among God's own people, there may be those who yield to a spirit of covetousness. And in some cases, the Lord gratifies their carnal desires but sends leanness into their souls as he did in the case of Israel of old. And number five, we'll end with this. Number 10, uh, no, excuse me, number 10, liberality and giving. We do not believe any heart can remain selfish and miserly where the love of God has been shed abroad in it, but rather that such a one will esteem it a, a privilege as well as a duty to support the cause of Christ and minister to any brother in need according to as God has prospered him. Yet it is a very misleading standard to judge a person's spirituality by his generosity. 1 Corinthians 13.3. For some years we lived in districts where the principal denominations taught that the church's spirituality was measured by the amount it contributed to missions. Yet while numbers of them raised very considerable sums, vital godliness was most conspicuous by its absence. Millions of dollars are given to the Red Cross Society by those making no Christian profession at all. Never were the coffers of the churches so full as they are today, and never were the churches so devoid of the Spirit's unction and blessing. And we'll end there. So you have to be very careful. And this is a very good chapter. He's really getting into the meaty stuff here. Very interesting stuff. So let us contemplate this. Let us think about it. And let us apply it to our souls. And we thank God once again for our beloved brother, Arthur Pink. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this study. Ingrained into our hearts and minds. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it to ourselves. So that we would be faithful. So that we would grow in grace. So that we would make progress 
for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.